0: Good afternoon, Uh, thank you guys all for coming. If anybody's uh, interested, please welcome to join. We are having um, uh, basically a discussion here with uh, Margaret Holt, she's the standards editor at the Chicago Tribune, so we're just gonna be discussing essentially the standards of journalism, what separates journalism from other news sources, uh, what constitutes fake news, how can you spot fake news, what are some of the attacks happening on media, and uh, any other questions you guys have. So we kept it kind of a small group because we'd like to keep it more of an informal discussion. So I'll leave it to Margaret to start off. And then if you guys have questions, please feel free.
1: Hi. So uh, I, I do like coming. I, you know, I was I was telling them that I uh, I live in the city, and I have the good fortune to have spent much of my career in Illinois. Um, I had a little Sunbelt hiatus, but I came back to my natural gravitational pull. and. Um, I was. I've lived in Downstate Illinois and suburban uh, Chicago, and now I live in the city. I live. Um, I live right on uh, on Lake Michigan. It's really kind of a cool place. But it's good for me to get out and and to be in other neighborhoods. I love coming to places like Moraine Valley, and um, you know, this weekend I'm going to Hinsdale for an event. I have friends. I'm having. I'm having a complete suburban Chicago area experience, and I think it's very important for all of us. I'm having brunch Sunday with friends in. Uh, Libertyville, So I'm, I'm really like the whole map, I have it covered. And, and I think that, you know, in some respects, that's sort of the way life is right now. We are much more connected than we are not, and the media is more important than ever. I am curious, uh, my background is, is that I am from Missouri, a little town in very rural Missouri. Went to school at the University of Missouri, the journalism school and um, you know, graduated many years ago. I, the whole Nixon saga was when I was starting out in uh, post-college. And so everything old is new again. And some of the very kinds of things that were raised during the Nixon era are being raised now. And so it is fascinating to me to watch these things unfold. And they're a little bit hypercharged because there's social media now. And, and that just makes everything faster and quicker and so tempting sometimes to see things and believe things and to maybe not take that time to think a little longer about what's out there and what's true and what's not. So um, I think this generation has an awful lot, the millennial generation has a lot in common with the baby boomer crowd because of some of those explosive changes in democracy and in about government and about faith. I was telling you earlier, I saw this really interesting poll re- re- last week or this week that um, s- people ages 18 to 30, the height of the millennial crowd, uh, GREATLY distrust the current president. They don't claim him, they don't identify with him. And I thought that was fascinating, and that, that is an absolute parallel <laughs> to when I was in that age group. So, so you know, I think there's, there's some dynamics and cycles that are in play here that are fascinating to watch. I do am curious about how you consume media. Um, how, how do you get your news? Snapchat? Everybody on Snapchat? Twitter? How about who's on Twitter? Everybody, pretty much. How about Facebook, uh, Instagram? Yeah, anything else? I'm kind of a newbie on Snapchat. I find it it's so fast and fleeting that it's not doesn't hold me, but it's but I know it's where people are, so I go and look and I'm interested. Um, so when you, where do you get your news? Tell me. I'm just curious. Twitter. Twitter. So, but what is it that you follow that gives you that news? CNN yeah yeah anybody else what else do you follow NPR NPR. PAs, but
2: for teachers. yeah <laughs>
1: that's yeah. yeah what how about some others what are some other things you follow I just, CNN. App, on my phone CNN. app on your phone for CNN yeah that's interesting how many of you uh, read a publication at home whether the Tribune or your South Town Economist uh, South Town or You know, New York Times, Washington Post. It kind of depends upon what you're interested in. So, when you say that you get your news from Twitter, is it mostly news feeds or is it because other people have tweeted something?
3: Yeah, mostly news feeds. Like, see, whenever something breaks, CNN will post it or post So, basically, I just. So how do you find,
1: how do you decide what's believable?
3: Go with the gut. Go with
1: the gut. Well, what do you mean? So Give me an example.
3: All the credibility of the source um, on social media to see how many people are following something or liked it, shared it, that brings about credibility, try to not take BuzzFeed seriously, things like
1: that. Okay. Anybody else, any other thoughts? Yeah, anybody, were you gonna say something? I, I don't have a single answer for this. I think that one of the biggest things that's happening in our society right now is that that people have gone for, from looking for news as having information from which they would make an opinion, they've moved towards looking for things that support the opinions they already have. It's you know, it's, it's, it's it's a different form of logic and do you really you know, is that good for us or not? I don't know. I mean, so I would offer to start with to think, ask you to think about the news and think about the sources and stuff, but also in your own worlds, think about the news feeds that you have. Who are your friends? Who are, who are the people who are tweeting things to you? And, and I th- think one of the biggest dangers for all of us is to be in an echo chamber, and that, is, that was true long before social media, but it's especially true now. You know, Fox News has done a spectacular job of building its brand as quote news, but those are all commentators that people are quoting. Clarence Page is one of our most uh, successful columnists, he's African American, he won a Pulitzer Prize, he happily bills himself as liberal. We would never say the Tribune is, you know, if, if Clarence wrote something, we wouldn't say the Tribune said, we would quote Clarence Page. But if his counterpart at Fox News says something as a commentator, that gets billed as news, and I think that has muddied the waters for what people think of as news. And and so when they start with the alternative truths and all these other kinds of things, it's beholden upon us as consumers to think about it in a different way. And I do have a handout that I'm going to share with you, but I want I want to wait a minute before I give it to you. Uh, I want to go through a couple of points and things about it. And my job is accuracy. It's 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 the fundamental part of our business. You know, if you think about it, journalism is really we sell air. I mean, we don't sell and produce a product in the way that a person, a, fa- a factory builds a, a car. I mean, it's entirely based upon how credible we are. And and so we spend a lot of time, energy, and money as an organization vetting it, building it, and protecting it. So that those things are the things that, like in the same way in the academic world, do you all, Pledge not to commit plagiarism. Do you have an academic pledge that says you won't steal things and lie and cheat? That's all part of things that happen once we come down from the mountain and choose to live in society and be a part of an organization. And those things that we maybe take for granted are being tested as never before. What is fundamentally true? And and I will let me offer a a different thesis. And I think this has really been borne out in the past few months. One of the things that's important to me is, uh, you know, we believe, and we've, we are a model, I should tell you, I'm very proud of this. The Chicago Tribune is a model in the news industry. We get questions from people all over the world about how we do our accuracy stuff. And it's philosophically, it's because we had long ago introduced a system that's based on the shared culture, shared values, that says our job is to get things right and it's to serve our readers. And part of that is owning mistakes, that we owe it to our readers, that they trust us and we have an obligation to fix it fast. So if you ever call us about a mistake, I can promise you that we're gonna know about it pretty quickly. We may not fix it because you may not be right, it may not be wrong, but we're gonna hear it. And what that does internally is it creates that atmosphere where people really make that effort to go that extra step and to know if they're wrong, we wanna talk about it. Because you have to have an environment where people care so much about doing the right thing, about getting facts right, that they will help each other, and that that really matters. And, and for us philosophically you know it's about truth and community and that our job as journalists is and it's protected by the Constitution is to give you the facts as citizens that you need in order to make decisions to live in our world to make decisions on behalf of all of us for the democracy you know so in many ways I you know I'm a creature of this world so of course I think this I've spent over 45 years in the business and you know, I've wasted my life if this isn't true, but I think people ultimately care about doing the right thing. I believe in our society, I believe in people, I believe like education, I believe that people having facts when push comes to shove are going to make the right decisions on behalf of all of us, and that we have to have some trust in one another and believe that, that those things matter, and I think that's the heart of the Constitution, that's the heart of journalism. And that's the heart of education. And so we have a lot in common when we talk about these things. And, and I don't lose faith as I look at all these things that are going on and the crazy news on I. I think that's democracy is messy and some of that is happening right before our very eyes. You know, the president says X, Y, Z. And now, thanks to modern age, people come right back out and they show clips of him saying, but you said this, and you said this, and you said this. That's the press doing its job and holding people accountable. That's our job as citizens to take those things and balance in our own minds what we believe. So in that vein, I do want to mention a couple things just for you to think about, and that's this. It's a little bit of a heresy, and I want to parse the word truth. People throw the word, well, that's the truth, and they throw it around without thinking about the underpinnings. And I would argue what's more important is understanding what facts are. Facts are facts. Like this is a, this is paper. This is you know a microphone pack. This is this is a pen. That's a fact. Now a whole string of facts are what you, as the consumer, the news consumer, gets to assemble in the way that you provide order in your life, that makes your truth. So your truth is going to be different than my truth, but it's going to be based on a set of facts. Part of our job in the news industry is. To be sure that we assemble as many facts as we can that will be useful to you as readers and as citizens to make those decisions. And I know that sounds kind of esoteric, but I'll, I'll throw another example out. And, and I will tell you this I have a great passion about diversity. Uh, that's because my mother was a Native American who grew up in, um, in upstate, upstate New York near Niagara Falls. And it was, you know, if you think of it this way, and we talk about policy and American government. These things are not that long ago. At the turn of the last century, right up until 1900, the federal policy of the American government was genocide towards American Indians. And then, really, after 1891, and with the the massacre at Wounded Knee, and from that point on, it gradually shifted, and then the policy became forced assimilation. And, and so then, it was, that introduced the period of the boarding school era. My mother was a product of that era where little Indian kids were raised in boarding schools in hopes of stripping them of their culture and identity so they would be more white. <laughs> There's no other way to say it. But, but there are variations of that. You know, these are our shared histories. We share all of these things. And so my world, you know, I understand that people perceive me to be white and that's true but I identify as multiracial, which is also true. And I see the world in a very different way than somebody whose experience was not like mine. My experience was that my mother was this wounded soul who grew up in that environment and was amazingly independent and fierce and went off to join the, the army and went to war in World War II, and served in the South Pacific and you know she was a nurse and settled in my little hometown with my father who was a dentist. And I grew up in the summer going on to the reservation in the summers. So, so, I grew up with this very multiracial, very multicultural background. What I consider important for me to make my decisions is different from what somebody who has an office next door to mine at, at the Tribune. That person grew up in, you know, suburban Chicago and parents are white and had, uh, you know, your traditional middle-class kind of upbringing. It doesn't mean that her truth is any more right than my truth. Mine is just different. And so from, uh, from journalistic perspective, it means I have to honor that other people need more facts to make those kinds of choices and decisions about things. You know, whether it's religion or whether it's race or cultural identity, all of those things. And all of those things are facts. And our job as journalists, no matter where we sit in the, in the, in the equation, is to provide people as many different facts to give a, more, a richer, more complete truth. So if you look at a front page on any given day of the Chicago Tribune's print edition, you'll see different names who might not have even been journalists 50 years ago. You'll see people like, oh, the lead story online today was by Marwa Altagori. She's an Arab-American and uh, she and I have a bond because her dad's a dentist like mine was and she grew up in Niagara Falls and knows my tribe. Well, who'd have thunk? Her parents are from Iran we have a connection and isn't that cool that that's the way the world works and so news flows out of that awareness that we need different facts and that my truth how I assemble them is going to be different from your truth but that there I know this is heresy to say this but there, when you hear people throw around the words like it's true think about it a little further and ask what are the facts that make that up and are there some facts that are missing that might have changed or shaded that kind of view? Because I think all of us know. You guys are you guys are further along and you know, you're in you're in college now. You know those days that things are black and white and it this is the truth and that's those days are gone. Isn't life so much more nuanced than that? So so I wanted to do my little thing about facts and truth and being conscious of the difference because you know to me it's really really important that people realize how different we all are and how rich that experience can be and that even if we are not I I don't know what it is to be black but I do know that the experience is different and that I will learn from people who didn't have the upbringing I did I don't know what it is to be Asian American and to live in this community this broader community I don't I you know I grew up in a a very rural area where the teacher you know I had eight Sunday school pins and I used to make my father take me to church on Sunday on vacation so I could keep my Sunday school streak alive, you know? So so I, you know, and I care about the difference between the King James Version of the Bible and the Revised Standard Version because 1 Corinthians 13 talks about faith, hope, and love and in in Revised Standard Version, and King James Version talks about charity instead of love. Uh, that matters to me. So, so I grew up in those kinds of environments, and I understand sometimes when I hear people from... You know, the so-called red states and the Christian evangelicals, those are my people too. I grew I was part of that. I, You know, I, I did the Wednesday night Bible studies and, and you know, Bible retreats. And, and I, you know, those, all of those things are not alien to me. And so part of this is also living outside your own comfort zone and reaching out to people from whom you can learn. You know, cherish and value those people who are different from you who bring a different thought and idea to the conversation? Because that, whether you're a journalist or not, is going to give you a richer view of the world, a better understanding of things as they are changing around us. You know, it's I, I, there is no single thing. But as news consumers, some of you may end up in journalism, some may not. But as you, in this heated time, as you hear all these things, I hope you can. I can at least give you some thoughts about evaluating what you hear. And maybe thinking about it in a little different way, Um, you know, whether you use it because you're going to be in media and communications in some way, great. But just you know, really, the ultimate goal of both education and journalism is that we all live a better life and be contributing citizens. You know, I, at the end of the day, I want to be sure that I am smart when I vote, and that I am educated, and that I am up to speed on what's happening with today's critical vote about healthcare and the latest uh, rulings by the federal judges about uh, the uh, immigration executive order on the immigration laws and whether the bans and travel bans will be enforced it matters those those things that were written the irony is you know on the immigration bans some of that flows out of a 1967 Arlington Heights case about racial discrimination you know so so the roots of that and it has to do with saying that the parties to the case things that they said outside the the documents and the the proceedings of the law are applicable in in determining intent, which means that's how the courts have had the ability to bring all that in to the decisions about the executive orders because they said it was their campaign was to ban Muslims and, well, we didn't say it in the ruling. So anyway, these are all facts and there are things that we can learn about because we are paying attention to a world that's different from our own. You know, just from a journalistic perspective, we do have a lot of things that are going on that we do to try to make sure that we are fair, that we are as, you know, balanced as we can be. It doesn't mean that you you have a false balance, that because you wrote five things negative about XYZ, you have to go find five positive things. That's not what I mean by fair and balanced. But what I mean is recognizing what our own limits in the world are and being open to those and actively seeking other voices, which we weigh. They may or may not be worth including in news. And as a news consumer, I think about that as I watch news, as it flies by on my Twitter feed, or if I hear it on the you know, NPR, or I see it on television. So, so the thing I would like to make to emphasize is with facts, be really careful with facts. It's a great legacy of American journalism that centers in Chicago, which is, if your mother says she loves you, check it out. It's pretty good advice for all of us, isn't it? And that is from the late, great City News Bureau. And, and that was the admonition that everybody who went to City News Bureau lived with and tried to live. If your mother says she loves, you check it out. So be that critical consumer as you look at all that news today and you're trying to decide whether, well, who's spinning me? What's in it for them? Why do they want me to think this way? So when you look at any, that's my next point, would be when you look at any communication, whether it's a text from a friend, a blog post, a letter, you know ask yourself what's the voice that's missing you know don't just look at what's there ask what's not there and that's that whole thing I come back again to the echo chamber you know it's so easy and I certainly do it too you know my friends on Facebook are my friends but every now and then I will go and look at my Facebook friends and I'll say whoa you know you need some people outside the Tribune crowd you have 115 Tribune friends that's probably enough Uh, each of us consumes news whatever you do don't settle Stay out of the echo chamber. I cannot say that enough. It is so tempting to go look. You know, we're more comfortable talking to people like ah, that person, but but how much more can we learn when we take the time to visit with people who are not like us and who are different? And you know, for me, it was easy. I come from a town of a thousand, and you know, I have a whole pack of small town, you know, jokes, like we had a stoplight and they took it away, you know, all kinds of stuff like that. And, and so for me, it's been easy because I come sort of unpolished. I don't have, you know, I'm not like people that grew up, you know, groomed for success at fancy schools and this and this. I'm, I'm you know, I'm kind of of the earth like a lot of us are, you know, I'm kind of scrappy. There were only like half a dozen, a handful of kids in my graduating class that went on to college. And, and so I understand, and, and I'm from nowhere. And for me, that's been good because it could have been a plus or a minus, right? For me, it's been good because it's everywhere. I've spent my whole life starting over and, and and I do feel very blessed in this respect. I I always think that wherever I am is the greatest place I've ever been. I think that people are fantastic and amazing and interesting and I can't wait to get to talk with them and see what I'm gonna learn from them. And you know, their lives are so much more interesting than mine. And, and so I'm just, that's partly, that's my natural curiosity about the world because of the job I'm in, but I think elements of that I would hope make life richer for me and I hope in terms of being a news consumer they can do that for you too, that you befriend people who maybe look at something a little different from, you, from what you might and uh, I don't know if you root for the Cubs as you do or if you root for the Sox but you know uh, if you're a Cubs fan go visit with that Sox fan and uh, if you're a Bears fan maybe there's an Indiana Colts fan around that we could talk to and, and all of this stuff. It, it, it's, it doesn't matter whether it's sports or news or politics or religion, there are always people who know more than you do about a subject that you can learn from. And it may, by virtue of speaking with them in terms of news, you may learn something that helps shed a new light on what you thought you knew. Um, one of my, uh, just a very personal experience is, I took care of my mother for 18 years and I used to joke all the time that it was never my intention to be this nice. You know, <laughs> there were times when I had no idea. But, you know, and we had just such a wonderful relationship, but there were, it was not easy for either of us, and so I had a mantra, which was, I will be patient, I will be gentle, I will be kind. And I would do that till my hand hurt so much I couldn't remember why I was mad. And, and what I have come to learn since then is, is that, the same is true for me personally, is that We need to be gentle with ourselves as we look and listen around the world and hear things and to be patient with ourselves as with others because there's so much going on in the world and we shouldn't be leaping to conclusions. We need to take that moment to digest that news that we hear to really put our own filters on and say is it true, is it fair, does it move the story forward, does it have an impact on people. And, and why do I care about it so much? Examine our own reasons for why we are searching for that particular fact. Why? Why? And because if you haven't thought about that as those filters that you're looking at news, then you're going to get spun. You will leap on that fake news because somehow that maybe supports something, some position or thought or hope that you might have had. And there'll be just enough little bit of potential fact in there that they'll suck you in and you'll oh, wait a minute. Why am I reading? So, so I think it is a really important time for all of us together to be really super responsible in, in what we do. So if you would help me with sharing some of these. Um, I do have a little handout, and it's just one page. I just thought you'd find it interesting. I'll mention one other thing about it. Is um, I have, on the front of it, I have a little screen grab. We have a editorial code of principles that we work by and everybody, every, we pass them out each year and all the journalists have to read it and sign off on it. And they have to list any potential conflicts and I talk with them about it. Be- because our commitment to our readers is such, we ought to vet ourselves. We got to be sure we're following the rules and that everybody understands what our obligation to fairness and truth is. So that's, if you want to see what our ethics code is and what we live by daily, you can, there's a point on there where it talks about download the file that's a screen grab to show you how you can find our full ethics code if you'd like to learn more about you know, sort of the standards that we follow every day in the work that we do. Then, uh, then some bullet points about some of the points I was making. Then on the back, I have just a one-page excerpt. This is the thing I find high school and college students are most interested in. Some of them are absolutely appalled at the idea that we don't let our journalists say whatever they want to say online were, were, were you all aware that most journalists follow that kind of a policy do you were you did you know that do people know that no yeah I find most people don't and um, I feel like I'm a highway patrol person you know I follow enough people on social media and the Tribune and we have almost 400 people and and we want people to be online but every now and then somebody is five miles over the speed limit or raging past at 20 over. And those are the people I might I might call their bosses and say, take a look at such and such. That tweet is a little over the line. But why do we care? And I think you get some of this from this, these highlights about uh, social media. We recognize that as journalists, especially as we participate online and in social media, that we represent the Chicago Tribune and that people will see that as representing the Tribune. So we can't be smart-alecky and we can't be, you know, partisan. And we have to be careful about it. I mean, I can't tell you, it's like, step away from the keyboard. There have been so many times when I want to be like everybody else and I want to say, well, look at that, can you believe, you know, boom, 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 boom. But but because of the role I'm in, I can't. And, And I do believe that language is a behavior it's the first it's one of the signs that's an indicator of what you do and what you believe and and I, if I start indulging myself in some of these wildly partisan things I'm not going to be very authentic and believable when I have a conversation with somebody that is diametrically opposed to whatever that tweet was about how can I'm not believable I don't believe me so so I do just I really police myself it's so tempting sometimes and the moment, it's, it's a slippery slope. And once you start to engage in those things, you go down a path that defines for others what you think about things. And they are going to be more withholding of information from you. So I'm careful for all kinds of reasons, not the least of which is, you know, I have a pretty high-profile job, and people have questions about fairness and accuracy and balance. And I owe it to them on behalf of my organization that, that I be as, you know, I'm aware and tuned into what's going on but I got to be able to take a step back and be open to hear what they have to say and uh, you know it's hard sometimes because we want to be a part of that and we want to be a part of that conversation and and yet to take that step back and really take that moment to think about process what you hear I think that's the most critical thing did you have anything you wanted to add or jump in on this I I just want to give a quick overview it's like 20 minutes about it
0: I guess if it's okay, if anybody has general questions, you know, feel free to ask. I was thinking, um, you know, a couple of the topics were, pardon me, I'm gonna get out of the way of this projector light. Um, but you know, I, 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 what I had spoken with Margaret about before about doing this was, okay, look at how do we, uh, if, if I want a different point of view, you know, I'm most of my news sources are pretty leftist, but I will no. try to follow a new story <laughs> from somewhere else, but my point is, how do I verify, you know, I know when I read the New York Times, when I read the Trib, when I read, um, you know, NPR things, uh, when I read the post, I know what I'm getting. When I read Fox News, I really don't know, like there was a Fox News poll that said Bernie Sanders is the most popular politician in America. I'm like, okay, you know what, I'll, fine. I mean, I like to hear that news, but the fact that Fox News did it is pretty interesting. But when I asked Margaret was, I go, well, what about sites like Infowars? What about, you know, the crazy sites on the very, very up left? yeah, exactly. But like okay, what do we do with those? though I mean, I just toss them aside. I go, Alex Jones. I'm not. C- I can't say publicly how I feel about that guy, but you know, but maybe what do we do?
1: But maybe they're worth following, so you know what's out there. I mean, it doesn't mean you have to believe it, but you have to be able to listen to contrarian views, just so you're aware.
0: How you doing? My name's John. Um, how do you? write about something that you know I mean I hate to use Mr. Trump as an example but how do you write about something that you know is blatantly not factual
1: that's been a great debate on the national scale and I think that uh, the who's the CNN reporter who has been very good about calling these things out Jake Tapper he has been very good at, and it's not about I think what it, uh, for everybody I think the key in conversations with people who are different from you it's not about calling them out it's about testing what they have to say. And it's about saying, but you said X, Y, Z, but earlier, but the facts say this and this and this. How do you reconcile that? That is very different from saying, you know, stay away from labels. You, sir, are a liar. Well, that's not the point. The point is, you said A, B, and C. You gotta be really clinical about this. And in your own mind, as you look at potential news sources, you have to be able to say, well, they said A, B, and C. But wait a minute, what about X, Y, Z? How do you reconcile those? I mean, that's the question. I think the New York Times and the Washington Post, who have led some of this extraordinary coverage of all these things, they at every point have been very careful to say the facts do not support this. That's, you, just because somebody says something doesn't mean we have to report it. And I think there was a little bit of this with, with Mr. Trump, where he would tweet something and everybody would tweet it. Well, now I think they're, being, they're, they're wise to that, and now they're being more careful to give that context. He tweeted XYZ. However, there are you know three congressional investigations about that very topic, and so far no one has provided information to support that. That is context, That and, and if that news source isn't doing that, then you have to ask yourself how reliable it is. It doesn't mean you shouldn't read it, but it ought to mean that you have a different filter that you apply to it. Is that an answer? Yeah, I mean, I think for all of us, we have to be careful. It's too lazy and, and convenient to try to just label things. It, life is so much more complex.
0: Can, can I ask a Journalism 101 question? Sure. I, I think a lot of us, or at least many of our students that we see, aren't familiar with kind of how news operations work. And so how the difference between editorial, the difference between a commentator, okay, the difference sure. between the newsroom and what the layers of a newsroom may look like. I right. think that would be really interesting to Yeah.
1: Hear. That one comes up a lot too and we and I should also o- offer this to you. I regularly invite um, people who are interested to come to a news meeting if you'd like. Sit in on a Tribune, a Chicago Tribune news meeting or an editorial board meeting. So maybe if you go through, if you were a point person. Uh, we just had, I, this morning I just met with a group of students from the University of Tennessee who were in town and they came to a news meeting and, and so um, the news side is separate from opinion. And and the way to think about our editorial pages and opinion and commentary is this, Um, especially the editorial board, Chicago Tribune is an institution. We are, you know, in effect, Chicago is the capital of the Midwest. And in effect, the Chicago Tribune is the flagship voice of the capital of the Midwest. So um, now I'm speaking about the organization. We feel like we have a responsibility to, because we have special privilege as a journalism organization, we have the, you know, the ability to add, demand people and hold uh, demand people answer questions on our, you know, on behalf of readers, and to hold people accountable. So our editorial board regularly will invite people in, newsmakers, to come in and explain whatever issues we may be wanting to talk about or that they may want to raise. Next week, for instance, the uh, president of uh, University of Illinois will be in, and this will be a chance for our editorial board to vet how he's doing on some issues that we have raised and covered extensively on the newsroom side of things. Now the role of opinion and editorial is to have opinions, to provide leadership. They have to be factual, they have to be fair, they have to be balanced, but they but they are about opinion. It's thoroughly supported and vetted opinion, but it is with an angle. That is different from the traditional news stories and coverage just as if you look on the front of the New York Times website or our website, those are news stories. They're not, you know, they're stories about things that are happening. They're enterprise stories that, you know, to the degree that we make a choice to cover things, have some influence about what we value. But they're about, they're thoroughly reported. So whether they're sourced and reported. You know, they're XYZ. We're not taking an opinion, for example, on, on out of our Washington bureau, the coverage of the healthcare bill. That's not our opinion that the very conservative freedom wing of the Republican Party is, me, has been meeting at the White House today with the president to see if they can broker changes in the health care bill. That's fact. Now, on the other side of the equation, our editorial board may take that set of facts and very well say, you know, uh, that's a great bill or that's a terrible bill, they should dump it. That's their role is to assess that, those facts, and, and lead in the way of opinion. It's particularly important with some of our state and county government um, things. We can have great influence in that respect. So so does that answer your question, at least about the opinion part? On the news side of things, uh, I will tell you, the greatest job I have had in my life was being a reporter. On a great, beautiful day like this, you look out, the sun is shining, and you know, you say to the boss, got a story, got to go. Boom, and you're gone. It's the best. You're ungovernable, you're out, it's you in the world it's the greatest job ever and i loved being a reporter when i started out it was just so wonderful and it, it, and it's about it, that's the other important distinction uh, between commentary and this it was not about us it was about telling other people's stories about getting facts that people could use to make decisions about stories but it was not about us you know it was about and you don't know you know the beautiful thing about journalism is Uh, People crave community and they crave shared experiences that help us define the world together. You know, in different places you identify, you identify as students here at this campus or you identify as people who live in this part of the universe or the Chicago region when you go somewhere else. There are all these different points of identity and people crave community. So I think that is also part of our role as, as journalism. You know, and, and, and as a publication. So when you read our site, whether it's online or in print, however you may consume news from the Chicago Tribune, you'll have some identification with it because it speaks to something, it resonates for you because it's got your interests. Maybe not all of them, but enough that help you feel some connection with others in our community. The Cubs were a really good example. The Bears are a good example. The Blackhawks, all of those kinds of things, you know, they're about more than sports. Or they're about more than you know, than 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 just being. They're about community and, and facts matter and serving all those things. They really matter. But I love being a reporter and it was a great job. It was a wonderful experience. Um, when did you I went I'm from Missouri and I went to school at the University of Missouri and J. School, at Missouri, which was a pretty cool thing. Journalism school. They have a, a B.J. Bachelor of Journalism degree. I'm still greatly uh, tied to the campus. I'm on an alumni board. I feel very fortunate. I go back to campus a couple times a year, meet with students, and uh, meet with the J school people, and with other alumni who care about the university in many different ways. And and you know, I mean, I'm from a, I'm 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 a child of the Midwest. It's like you grow up and, and you you know you learn you learn that part of your life is giving back and so for me being a part of that has been very important. Yeah. Uh, what advice
2: would you give someone
1: that you wants to get started? I think it's um, you have to just do stuff. I mean you have to just, it's it's very much craft and you have to just do stuff and, and that may be um, like your local news outlet or radio station or uh, Southtown doing uh, scores on Friday night and whatever if it's sports or uh, any other kind of thing or your campus news organization, you you know, you do, yeah, yeah, there you go. Campus, campus news thing is a great way to get started, it is, it's just wonderful, it's a wonderful thing to do, you know, so any other questions? I had a really eclectic background, I should probably mention. I, um, I, uh, st- I went to the smallest paper that paid the least because with the arrogance of youth, I just figured I'd go to a big place when I wanted to, and even worse, it happened, you know? But, um, <laughs> but I started a little bitty newspaper, had tremendous experiences, went to, went to other places. Uh, I came, I, I got into, I was education editor, I did government, I did courts, I did everything. And then I got more interested in the larger stuff and got onto the editing side of things. I got very interested in business news in the 80s when it was just starting to explode as a coverage topic. And uh, uh, one other little tidbit as a precursor to explain things is I had a golf scholarship to college in the pre-Title Nine days and played intercollegiate softball, basketball, and golf when, when girls were not welcome, let's just say. So, so I have all these eclectic iconoclastic interests that have been, You know, I'm just curious about the world in all kinds of ways. And so I was in Dallas, and then Times Herald was sold, and somebody I met when I was at Little Papers in downstate Illinois, I'd stayed in touch all these years. So I went to Fort Lauderdale, which was a Tribune newspaper, and went there as the business editor. And they, they, I met all the bigs from Chicago, the suits from Chicago would come to do plan reviews and so forth, and the big executives, and I had to do presentations for them, and I developed relationships with them, and they brought me to Chicago in 93, and I came here, as the uh, associate managing editor for sports. And I was the first woman to run sports department, a top 10 newspaper in America. And and it was a tremendous experience because I, d- you know, I love sports and do even now. And then, but as part of this, I had this background, a very geeky background in strategic quality and customer issues, which is unusual. But it's because I spent all those years in business news. And so I was very interested in all of these things like management and leadership and training and um, ethics and these things and and that fit with that focus on you know because the newsroom has to be more than just about doing good journalism it has to be connected with audience and with readers so i was i was really allowed to do a lot on that front and with the accuracy and ethics and connection with customers so that's sort of my my background i've done a little bit of everything I just was not interested. I was interested in the journalism piece of it and, you know, I really love the rigor of, of, you know, the traditional journalism and that we are able to do and use, have so many resources and do depth, depth on stories and things. I've done every, all kinds of things and worked with all kinds of wonderful people who are just brilliant and principled and caring and and I feel very fortunate. Somebody else? Yeah. I, I don't write that much anymore, but I like everything. I mean, I, I just, you know, I read cereal boxes. I am just curious about the world. You know, I, I'm just, I'm interested in so many things, and, and, and journalism has just been this, you know, wonderful synthesis of a lot of different things. And in the job that I have, you know, when people contact me about fairness or accuracy or something about the Tribune, it helps that I really do know the whole product i know the whole organization
0: can, can i ask about the health of the journalism industry I, as a librarian you know we're i'm very interested in how things are evolving and profit models that are deteriorating and uh with these the late recent election i think we can see the value of the fourth estate. right
1: so
2: how, well, how are we that. doing <laughs> how are we doing
1: well you know uh, we take our pulse every day <laughs> um i think that never has the journalism been more important than now never has our audience been bigger than now and never has have the sources of revenue been more up for grabs than now so we continue i mean this has been the last really 10 or 15 years of economic upheaval and and chaos cuz they continue to search for things it's similar in some respects not the same but similar to some things that have happened with music you know i think that whole thing with uh, with that notion of somehow oh Music's free, well, it's not. And you know, they effectively got people's attention when they started suing the parents for <laughs> downloading all that music. And that just changed the nature of a lot of the music things. Content you know, in the knowledge society, it costs money to get content, it's very expensive. And um, you know, in the knowledge world, uh, those, those reporters for the New York Times, they are some of the tops in the business they make a lot of money and it's expensive to live in New York City or Washington. And even in in these markets, in in places like Chicago and L.A. and the next tier of the big metros, the top 10 news organizations, very, you know, it's a very costly adventure. And it still has been, it's been, what's really been happening has been a gradual change from over-reliance on retail and advertising to expecting and asking consumers to pay a bigger share, that has finally started to take hold. Uh, I think uh, if do, how many of you um, take uh, or your or your families have uh, Amazon. And do you, do you buy? You know, if you, you they have the deal on Amazon where for like next to nothing, what's the name of the uh, Amazon Prime? Amazon Prime. If you have Amazon Prime, you can get the Washington Post for like four dollars, five dollars a month, right? It's like nothing. That is like one of the great bargains in American journalism and you should do it. But the, the beautiful thing is is that to recognize that New York Times and the Washington Post and the Tribune to a much lesser degree, all these main new big news organizations are experiencing a surge in digital subscriptions where people are actually paying for the content. That is new. It has been really influenced heavily by the election, really going back a year the campaign and the election and then the post-election period so so that part of it is very good there are more eyeballs finding ways to make that pay are probably going to be a mix because even as all this is happening the disruptive effect of technology just as it's changed media and communication is changing retail and uh, you read the headlines Sears struggling Uh, Macy's big organization it's struggling there those places have been traditional and Kohl's a lot of the traditional mall retail bricks and mortar places are reevaluating how much they need in presence everything old is new again I think the strip mall is back in vogue who would have thought you know there was a 50-year cycle where everybody was mall 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 and now the commercial developers are looking at really strategically located Uh, mega strip malls for lots of kinds of things you know those malls where you can go and and have your Best Buy and Best Buy you know things come and go Best Buy was on the ropes a few years ago and they re-engineered their business but it's the overall overriding thing for us as well as for retail has been the the struggle to uh, figure out how to make the best use of technology and and bricks and mortar all those things so so it's kind of a mix I think that there will, uh, clearly there's going to be some um, reliance on advertising but not in the way that we have known in the past. Um, there's a market for, I think increasingly for the print part of product is evolving. The Sunday magazine sense, magazines have not gone away, there were people who were predicting books and magazines would, were, were goners and the exact opposite has happened especially women's magazines. Now, I don't understand why, but there is great interest that why those topics, and it's like me time, I'm, I'm told, by some of the researchers, the marketing researchers, you know, things like, and I take them because my mother took them, and I like them. I would not have sought them out. I've taken Sports Illustrated since, uh, since the 60s, so I love Sports Illustrated, but I get a Ladies Home Journal, and not ladies, they're the ones that died. It's Good Housekeeping, and um, McCall's, and some of these others. Those are magazines that have life, and why? And people are willing to pay for the content. So, so some of the, and books. How many of you read hardback books? And how many read on some kind of tablet or product? But, but don't you read both? Aren't, you know? I, I find like if I go on vacation, I really appreciate the tablet, because then I can just load four or five books, <laughs> and I don't need to take physically five books. But when it comes to something I want, electronic marking a page does not in any way give me the satisfaction that putting a post-it note on a favorite passage does. You know, it's just not. So I think the whole economic thing is, is hopefully, I mean, one of, the, one of the great sources of research about this is the Reynolds Institute at the University of Missouri. They are really narrowing in on innovation products related to revenue to support journalism. So I think there'll be more on that front and that we're we're seeing things now. Anybody have some other questions, comments? Yeah. Um, how do you feel about the call to
3: action at the end of different journals and-
1: news? In what way? What do you mean? Well, there's
3: a lot of um, news that goes out there that- Thank you. Um, there's a lot of news that goes out there that is frightening. And there's nothing to give the audience any hope at the end. Like, and here's what you can do in response to it. How do you feel about that?
1: Well, that is a perfect segue to the whole thing with social media and why I would brought these excerpts. I don't, and this is, this is a thing that's somewhat up for debate in, in the journalism circles. Can we be credible and still have a call for action? And I think not. But I don't think it's a black and white line. I mean, I think that the call for action that journalism, if it's to be believable, is to encourage people to read more and to look at this and to look at that. It's not to be the one to sound the, the bell to go, you know, to the ramparts we go. That is not our role. That might be, to your question earlier about the editorial board, that might be the role of opinion and commentary. But if it is a news presentation, it is not for us to say, well, the women's marches on Saturday, see you there, you need to be there. That is not our role. The editorial board can write that editorial that says, "This, is, this march is critical. you should be there." That's the difference. But I have and, and I don't know whether this brands me as an old fogey or whether that is still true. I think there is every generation has pushed back against this notion that we have to be professionally separate. When I was in college, it was the Vietnam War. And, and, you know, those of us who were in J School, this is J School in Missouri, so he had a really high level peer group. People come from all over the world to go to J School there. So we were sort of standing together on this berm overlooking the protest area watching what was happening because we knew in our own hearts that we were going to be journalists and we couldn't participate. We, could, we couldn't be credible in writing about it if we were part of it. And, and I think those lines have blurred a little bit, but not, to the point of advocacy. And that's our concern, for example, with people being in social media. We, they should not be advocates for things. I'm very careful. If I post something about, I almost, I'm so careful. Because you know, I'm. if I'm the one dinging people for being too aggressive in social media, believe you me, they would be the first to tell me if I crossed the line. So, so we all have to kind of help each other.
3: Well, that kind of goes into, you know, having certain beliefs anyways and writing a piece versus not acting on it and still writing the piece. So maybe it's just a matter of accepting that we all have our own beliefs and right. everything's subjective.
1: Well, I don't know that I'd say everything is subjective. I think there's a difference between being fair and balanced and, and being ad- an advocate. I mean, I see the world in a certain way because of my personal experiences. And, um, you know, I know that and accept that. But it also means that I know I'm vulnerable on some points because I don't have that, those experiences. So it can work both ways. I don't think it's reasonable to think that people are just this blank slate and they go into the world and, you know, they can therefore be pure. It, it isn't that simple, it's much more complex. You know, and it can be a good thing because having a different background in things exposes you to things and information that you might not have otherwise. I will tell you that for me, you know, identity and especially a racial identity has been a journey. And um, I'm involved in a lot of diversity programs and journalism and so forth. And for me, you know, I have the luxury that many people do not. Mine is by choice. I have chosen to to learn more about this because I could, I like to point out, I could pass for white and choose to be more. But what it has taught me is, just on a personal level, that if I know that 99.9% of people are wrong in their assumptions about who I am, flip that. I think it's humbling to go out in the world and know that I am probably wrong about them too. And, and so, so living with our own awareness is, is a critical element of it. It doesn't mean that you have no prejudices or biases. It means that you own who you are. I can't change the fact that, you know, part of what heightened it for me is my awareness of my mother. I t- had mom custody. We did all things Indian. We reclaimed her identity over a long period of time. That was a journey she took and I helped her with. I, was, I aided and abetted her in that. So it changed my life. It changed my view. And it's made me able to to be more in the world. And people can trust that or not. But it also means I also have an experience as a person coming from a middle class white background too. I have both. So say like um,
3: Dakota Access Pipeline, that was a presentation earlier this week.
1: That was a good one.
3: It was great, yeah. And if you were to write a piece on it or would you still not participate
1: in. That's a really good one because that has come up. And let me answer that in two ways. No one asks white people, white journalists, if they check their prejudices at the door. No one asks them that. So, So I find it somewhat hypocritical that they would ask Native American journalists if they check their prejudices at the door. So, so let's just start with that as part one. But I am aware that it is a topic that is of great interest to me. And I, my friends in my Facebook feed have been talking about this for a year now. And it did not make its way into mainstream circles until really last September. I think uh, um, NS, MSNBC was one of the first to start to report on this and then the networks picked it up. But But I am aware because I am interested in it because of my Native American ties and the fact that I know a lot of the people covering it from in Native circles, it means that I'm careful in how I present it to people. I'll say, hey, by the way, I may talk with the, I mean, part of, we all bring a package of experiences to our work and they all inform what we do. So it's sort of on me to say to my colleagues who making choices about national stories hey, by the way, I've been following this, and I know people who cover this, have you seen an update on this? I think this is an important (laughs) change or point in the coverage. I feel very comfortable doing that because I've made it clear what my interest is, why I know, whether we ought to be at the point of considering it. It's still their decision, but if I weren't that person who happens to have that knowledge and background, it might not get covered. But I have a responsibility, because I know about those things, to raise them, but then to back away too and to know that because of the trust I have in the newsroom, I'm not going to push something for my own bias or reason. It, that may have brought it to my awareness, but it's not going to change. Well, how do you,
3: because you have passions and everyone has passions, so how do you separate passion from work?
1: Oh, I think, I think that's very true. Uh, It's, I would take it down a notch, which is to say that we all have things that interest us. You know, if they are the things we're passionate about, then we got to be careful. Well, the great, the late, great Jerome Holtzman, who was a Hall of Fame baseball writer and a Tribune columnist, he wrote the epic, it's a classic in sports writing, called No Cheering in the Press Box. And I think that's true for all journalists. There's no cheering in the press box. Part of the responsibility we accept is that we take a step outside of what our own interests are. You know, they may bring us to stories, they may inform us about different things, we have perspectives, but we gotta be clinical about it and take that step back. Well, that answers that, yeah. Does it or not? I mean, I think you do have, you do have, you can't be rooting for it because it's that advocacy thing.
2: Hi, I'm a teacher and we've been covering and I'm actually worried about the phrase fake news, yeah. the power that, uh, unless you're talking about a pure hoax, you know, the, and the way that that word is changing. Um, so I kinda had two questions. Our, our administration, is, well our president has been using the phrase fake news now to sort of, um, in a different way, that I used to teach it years ago as like the straight up hoax, like ha 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 on the internet, people believed this, the satire thing. Um, And are we concerned? I mean, we, we need a free press to report to the citizens, as you said, what is happening and what our government is doing. But when everyone starts to get on board with the idea that the press is just wrong or they're all fake, I mean, he called CNN fake news, he calls, you know, specific things, is this, is this dangerous or <laughs> are we going to recover from this as far yeah. as our democracy and believing the press and letting them do their job?
1: You know, it's so interesting to watch things play out. I mean, I, that's why I think when you have a critical time like now, like right now, that, you know, you stay the course. A lot of these organizations have been, you know, he's, he's, people have started to realize, real people, people who vote and who are considered in polls they're, they're the ones who are starting to say well I don't like it when he tweets you know there's this even people who supported him don't like it when he tweets and that's when he gets into that but I, I, there is you know now we go to Shakespeare truth will out I mean I think there is some level of patience and understanding process and being able to say truth will out uh, and that this is we are a relatively young democracy this is a huge test probably the biggest test to some of the principles of government since the Civil War, and in terms of some of these constitutional issues about freedom and about religion and about First Amendment rights. So these are big tests. So far, I would say the Founding Fathers got it pretty right. You know, that there is this great resiliency, that people value that and will fight for it. The First Amendment is not just about journalists, it's about all of us having the right to peacefully assemble. It doesn't start with the press. We're the afterthought. It's about people's right to assemble and to speak out and to have religious liberties and and to petition government. It's not we're the we're the fifth of five freedoms in the First Amendment. And, and I think that it's incumbent upon all of us to recognize that that this is about all of us. That that sense of the freedom to speak out or to be different and to have that voice. The religion thing is I cannot emphasize enough how critical that is as an element and why that those executive orders keep getting batted down you know the intent is a Muslim travel ban and and you know it's so obvious and it keeps getting batted down and you can almost imagine the Supreme Court despite whatever side of the line they liberal or conservative they fall they view that as a constitutional issue and and I you know I think that may surprise people that it would not at some point that may go to the Supreme Court and they will rule on two aspects the religious freedom issue and the right of the courts to be a third independent branch of government respect for the law that's another current in this as well so I don't know I think there's some I I think that I think we have to be on guard and protect our liberty at all times that is a lesson for all of us as Americans I think the whole Russian stuff is kind of scary and and, uh, as do all of us and heaven knows this tapping of uh, you know, um, channels and so forth. Very scary. So, so we have to be patient and be able to see as, as more and more reputable news stories. These stories don't break overnight. You know, the, the reason the racial Maddow story, the, the reporter that had that tax thing, David K. Johnson, he is a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter who won a Pulitzer for tax coverage and one reason why they had that report was, stories beget stories. So you know that was not just the story. That, there's clearly some play going on here. But the moment that that starts to come out, more truths follow. And that was the story of Watergate. That's the story that you're seeing now. One truth here, one truth there. Contracts, governments, this, that. All those things have to play out. So I, I guess I haven't thought a lot about is fake news and that label, good or bad. I, I have some faith in people, in, in our fellow citizens, and I think people are fundamentally smart. And, and I think that fe- people, this society, respects one another and that they will, we have to have some faith in one another that with information people will make good choices.
2: Um, okay, so I'm in her debate class and everything. And uh, like do you, you disagree s- with me or agree? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so I know that you were just talking about truth and everybody has their own truth and everything.
1: Facts. Facts are the fundamental base. Yes,
2: facts. But I was wondering how do we differentiate the like the facts. Like let's say that I was watching Fox News and they come off as we're not we're not biased or anything or
1: But but you have to assess what they're telling you. Is what they're telling you an opinion or is that factual? Is it about this document that said A, B, and C? Well, do they have the goods? And if they do and they're reading from a document, then sure, you can believe that. But if they're just making stuff up out of thin air, then you've got to say, wait, wait a minute. And the same is true not just for Fox, but for CNN, for ABC, for NBC. Do they have the goods? Are they just saying that? How do they know that? What's the source of that? Why is that valuable? Why are they making that a big deal? But just to say it isn't enough. Anybody else?
0: Um, I just want to echo that because I tell that my, I teach math and I say that to my math students. I'm like, okay, just because you said it doesn't mean anything. It has to, you know. Uh, you know,
1: it's, I'm glad you brought up math. That was like one of the great epiphanies for me. I was in this class once. I was in this uh, project thing, and I was the only girl and the only right-brainer. All the rest were like production guys and engineers. And, you know, they get out, we're, we're going to do some math now. And everybody gets out their little scientific calculator. And, and the guy that we had hired as our consultant to work with us on this project manager, it was about flow systems engineering and stuff. And I was the leader of this project team. And we're sitting there, and the guy goes, Oh, well, that sounds about right. And I go, Holy cow. He just wrote around it. That's what we do. And it was just this eye opener for me. Is just the BS and math is just as, is, it's just <laughs> as much. And and you know, yeah. as a right brainer I have always struggled with this like, well it's so precise, it's a number. And I'm like, well uh, bullshit. It's no, just yeah. come on. Yeah. And and you know, so I it's true with math too. Just because it's a number, we don't just have to sit up and bark, you know, it may not be right. That number, somebody somewhere created the underpinnings that led us to put a label, a number on something. And so the fundamental reasoning of that could be wrong.
0: I just had one other question about so going on what Krista was saying is so now the I believe the White House press secretary or maybe even the White House is considering like banning certain news outlets altogether. There was some talk of that. Like I know they disinvited certain people from certain conferences and I guess how dangerous is that? Is that really gonna hamper anything I- considering we still have a lot of other organizations there.
1: Hey truth well out. You know the I love musical theater, and there's this great line in the song, in the musical, The Fantastics. And and the name of the song is, why do the kids put beans in their ears? They did it because we said no. And another line in this is, you know, to to manipulate children, you merely say no. Well, all you have to do is tell them they can't go and they're going to be all over you like a cheap suit. So so just telling those news organizations that they can't come is not going to have the effect that they're desiring. Once you tell them, then you know what it means is if I'm a journalist, if I'm a reporter on that story and somebody says I can't have that, that is gonna tell me that I am hot on the trail and I am gonna double down on how hard I press for that. So you can, you know, you can say that and you can say we're not gonna have you here, but I have such enormous faith and confidence in the ability of reporters to work past those barriers and to know that they're onto something. When somebody throws up a barrier like that, That means you're right and you have to work even harder.
0: My last question is how do we verify?
1: You you guys have access to sources, the internet. You have access to finding information as never before. If somebody says something, you can go and find if there's a YouTube about that. You can go and find that information. You can find out for yourself. So, so I don't think that we have to. B- the days of like the 30s when, when Mussolini and Hitler could spoon feed people because they could shut off channels, there is a reason in, in totalitarian societies where the first thing they do is shut down the printing presses and try to silence the artists. Artists speak truth in different ways.
2: I just want to comment. I'm glad you pointed that out because to o- older generations, we, um,
1: have
2: oh yeah, I teach speech, I could project without this thing, but you know, um, we we know the difference between journalism and what's just a blogger or some website right. that just popped up last night and it, journalism is the set of standards and the ethics that people are personally, out of principle, committed to and of course to maintain the integrity of a news organization that's existed for decades, we see the difference. But to a lot of millennials, they're all websites. Right, It's all websites that popped up in a feed somewhere and I think that's the I've been trying to teach them. Well, if the headlines look like this, that might be bad. Or if it's too many pop-ups, it might and be you bad. Or consider, and you know. have
1: to consider the source. You have to consider the source for the information. They don't just throw something out there without sourcing it. And that's the biggest difference with some of the And websites. then you have to
2: double check the source. As you right. said, we have Google. It's all at our fingertips. We just can't believe something just because it confirms what we already love right. to believe.
1: Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I've enjoyed this. One more question. Sure your time thank you just for joining us I love to come and this visit with students I'm happy to have you so I'm happy to have you come visit us
3: <laughs> one general question what would you say was the most valuable lesson that you've learned throughout your career
1: oh gosh hey I'm 65 that's a lot of career <laughs> you know I don't know I mean I think the w- I, I think it's being kind and, and people don't expect that you know but but You know we're out in the world and we have to be open to things and we have to be sympathetic and hear things i I will tell you you know i've had the great privilege of meeting all kinds of people in all kinds of places and formats and you know heads of state and this and this and i will tell you one of the most memorable for me and i i've told this story many times and it's one that is just so meaningful i was a baby reporter just a baby journalist just out of school barely 21 or two and i was downstate illinois and all local front page and I got the assignment of, I got to write about this woman, her name was Helen Pearson and she had just come to terms, she was having a fundraiser and this is the classic small town story, right? A 20-inch feature with a picture and it's about this lady and she's holding a fundraiser. She'd lost everything. she you know, she'd been diagnosed with this debilitating disease and out of the depths of her, her terror and fear, she had rallied and was starting to build a life again and she was holding a fundraiser. And I thought, how beautiful is that? You know, I'm 21 or two, I write this story, I go on with my life, right? And so I was in Chicago. I had not been back to Central Illinois in years. Hadn't been back, this was in 73. So in the year 2000, I had my mother. Little mama liked, uh, she liked the penny slots on the river boats. So for 4th of July, the year 2000, we were gonna, I rented a big tank because you know, old ladies, they do not travel light. You know, we the <laughs> walker, the wheelchair, the this. So I schlepped little mama to Peoria and she's all excited because we're gonna stay in a hotel that has room service. Takes so little to make the moms happy, right? And I had not been there since 73. So over 25 years had passed since, you know, since I'd been back, uh, roughly 25 years. I pick up the Peoria Journal Star and the first obit, Helen Pearson yeah it's like Rod Serling isn't it it's like and I think to myself oh my god and family was quoted she became an internationally known fundraiser for the this disease traveled all over the world and her relatives said how much she appreciated that her local paper wrote about her, her first fundraiser what are the chances that I would be there to see that and you know and you know and then you take the step back and you say thank you God for I was on that day I was there in the moment I was blessed to be there to tell her story I was I was there I heard what she had to say it mattered I took her seriously I told her story and most of us never see what happens the power of the work we do and to find out twenty some years later even though our lives never our paths never crossed again that even in a little place to tell someone else's story to tell it truthfully and well had an impact. That to me was just so powerful. So, so you know, every day I wake up and I think to myself, you know, I'm gonna meet people today who are gonna be really powerful in my life. And I think that matters and that i be curious about the world, that i be open to it and that I let them change me. So, you know, I like those moments. I don't know if that was what you were looking for but but I, I, I have had so many of those chances to meet people. You know, we are all average, ordinary people in our way, making our world a little better day by day. And so I would wish for you that whatever path you take, that you find something that is as meaningful for you as my world has been for me. And, and uh, you know, the chance to meet classes and people here and in other places, it matters to me. And I think we all have to help one another. So thank you all.
0: Thank you. Does anybody else have any more questions at all? Thank you so much.